This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 21, it says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. If you're just jumping into this story, you might miss the fact that Jesus has been traveling from, from coast to coast almost. Last week, he was in this region over here in the Decapolis, which is a non-Jewish area of, of Israel and Palestine. It was, it was a non-Jewish town where he was meeting uh, an individual who had been possessed by a demon. In fact, hundreds if not thousands of demons, and the, the way that that man described them was they are uh, legion because they are so many. Jesus being in a non-Jewish part of town was strange, and it was something that might potentially render him unclean. Not only was he around non-Jewish individuals, but he was also ministering to these people around the tombs, around death, around places where um, he should not, in a sense, be. But what has happened is he's left his, his normal port of Capernaum. He's gone across the sea, and as he was traveling, that was where that story of the, the storm on the sea and all the things going crazy and disciples being scared about what was going to happen and Jesus stilling the storm and route to the Decapolis and route to this, uh, this moment where he would meet a man who was possessed by many demons. Now we see Jesus heading back to the west and it's probably uh, safe to assume that he's going back to Capernaum or in the roundabout regions, perhaps uh, ending up over in Nazareth at some point, but he's, he's done his work here and now he's heading back to where he was doing most of his ministry at this time. It says, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. It's unclear what role Jairus had in the synagogues, but we see Jesus again moving from ministering to non, uh, a non-Jewish crowd to now meeting uh, someone who was leading the synagogue, someone who was structuring, in a sense, the teachings and the responses and, and the spiritual life of the people at that time. It's unclear if Jairus was the only one that was functioning in that role at that synagogue, or if Jairus was one of a couple, uh, like an elder-ruled sort of synagogue. It's unclear, most people would, would prefer the latter, where Jairus is just one of a handful of people that are overseeing the spiritual needs of the people at that time. But be that as it may, Jairus is someone who has Jesus on his radar. We can see that in this story, he has Jesus on his radar because of the things that Jesus is potentially able to do for him, uh, specifically the healing of his daughter. But also understand the background as we kind of enter into this story, Jairus was probably one of the ones who was uneasy about what Jesus was up to. This rogue rabbi who was being subversive and rebellious in a sense and really stirring the pot, um, it's quite possible that Jairus was, was one of the few that was actually allowing Jesus to have a voice. There might have been other synagogue leaders who, who kind of held Jesus off at, at an arm's distance saying, you're not safe, we don't trust you, we don't know what you're, what you're doing, but everything that you're doing seems to be completely antithetical to who we are and what we want to accomplish. Remember that line where Jesus is talking about putting new wine into new wineskins. The old, the religious structures of the time could not contain what Jesus was doing in that moment. And all of this stuff might be going on in Jairus' mind, but as we see, this was kind of a last-ditch effort for him. It says that he not only sees Jesus, but he approaches him and falls at his feet. Even in our context now, that is a sign of humility. It's a sign of desperation. It's a sign of uh, complete and utter surrender, in a sense. And here we have one of the dignitaries in the religious uh, st structure of 
the Jews in this region, identifying Jesus as the one who could potentially help and save and deliver his child. It says he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. That statement there, my little daughter is dying. I don't want to over psychoanalyze the text here, but allow yourself to understand the plight of this individual. His daughter is dying. This is not in a time where the typical course of action would be going to a hospital, seeking out medicine. This was a time in which if certain treatments didn't work, then you were left with not much else to do other than sit and wait. But the stories that have preceded Jesus up to this point, stories of Jesus bringing in the kingdom in a very real and tangible way that has evidenced itself in healings and casting out demons and teaching with authority and just something that was new and compelling and exciting about this individual has caused Jairus to go to find Jesus, to fall at his feet, and to breathlessly plead help. That song that we sing, Hosanna, in the Hebrew, it's, it's an imperative, save us. Do what you can do to completely and utterly transform and restore and reconcile. And here we see the local pastor, if you will, asking Jesus to, to, to do this. He asked specifically that Jesus would come and put his hands on his, his little girl. At this time, there was some kind of understanding that certain holy people, if they were to touch them, that there was power in that touch. We'll see as the story continues that it goes even beyond that in this particular time frame. But for, for Jairus to say, come and just put your hands on my little girl, and that might be enough to save her. We, we see the, um, the Markin sandwich. That's a good-looking BLT. You've seen it before. We, in chapter 3, I believe, we saw um, this instance of Jesus' family hearing about their son being crazy, and then they start the journey, and then something else takes place, and then Jesus' family shows up at the end. So what Mark usually does is, at times, he structures his stories by beginning a certain event and then pausing it, going to talk about something else, and then picking up the loose ends from this beginning story. So here we meet Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders who shows up and says, Jesus, if you can do anything, do it. If you could just go to my house and put your hands on my little girl, we've tried everything, there's nothing left for us to do, please just come with me. So Jesus begins this journey with Jairus, but in the, in the midst of that, he meets someone else. He meets, in particular, uh, a woman. We'll hear more about this woman uh, in the next few verses. It says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. This is important because as Jesus is, is moving from place to place, crowds are seeing where he is and seeing where he's going and wanting to be near him. I, I have to pause there for a moment and just think for two seconds about how something about the church and the Christian message has lost its interest in, in the public square. It's not compelling to people, and I don't know if that's because we've, we've rendered it powerless or we've turned it into legalism or we've turned it into something that it's not, but wherever Jesus was, people were following him and wanting to be near him. Jesus was somebody who, we don't quite know how he did it, but his, 
His love was inclusive, yet he was also able to call sin, sin. And those people still wanted to be near him and with him and in relationship to him. And I have to pause there for two seconds and just ask that very pregnant question. Do people want to be around us? Because the gospel is compelling and because it's good and because it's redemptive. Or have we turned it into that old wine and old wineskins that's tired and legalistic and judgy? Or have we figured out in some small way what it looks like to live in light of Jesus' radical love for us? Okay, that was a bit of a rabbit trail. So Jesus is moving and crowds are following him. It says, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding. Literally in the Greek, you could say that this is a woman being in a flow of blood continually for 12 years. I know Sarah's in the house and Mary's here somewhere. I'm gonna dial it back from the, uh, the lady science um, just, just for a moment. These are our two midwives here who have no problem shouting out uh, terms and things, but here we see that this woman um, has an issue, and it's one that is going to render her unclean in the community. I do have to say this. It was very strange dipping into the commentaries this week. I believe I saw some words that I wasn't expecting to see and haven't seen in the, the typical critical commentaries, but be that as it may, okay? Um, so this woman was, was bleeding, and she had been for 12 years as a zava, that is, um, you could say, mm. as a woman who is bleeding, that's, that's where I'll leave that. Okay, if you want to hear the, the more technical term, you can come talk to me later. But as a zava, the woman would probably have been quarantined. There was, there was um, holiness laws at this time that was structuring a Jewish identity. If certain things were happening, you were outside of the community. And this wasn't just a woman thing. This was a man thing as well, where there's different things that if they were happening, you had to go, in a sense, quarantine yourselves and go through the ritual purifications. And this woman, because she was continually bleeding, she had this issue for 12 years, it's, it's thought that she might have been outside of the community for that long. It says the surreptitiousness of the woman's approach, the fact that she's so hesitant in approaching and just wanting to touch his garments and then leave is telling us something. It might be an indirect indication that she is ritually unclean and is violating a taboo by being out in public. Think about this for a moment and as, as you consider this particular instance, again, the people that want to be around Jesus are the ones that have been on the outskirts and on the margins and completely ostracized and they say to themselves, if I could just be near him, if I could just touch the hem of his garments, if I could just occupy the same space, if I could just go against the taboos of the day and weave my way into this crowd and, and just, maybe. Jesus was, was, a, was a walking embodiment of hope. And this woman just wanted to be near him. It says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Some people think that this is kind of an ironic twist that Mark is, is putting out there. At the time, there was a couple of different ways that people viewed um, physicians. Some of them would have thought, 
completely ludicrous, and other people might have thought that there, there could be potentially some, some stuff that could have happened to heal folks, and this might be Mark's jab of saying doctors are garbage, or this might probably be better read as Mark's very subtle indication that Jesus is the better physician. This woman who has gone through everything and completely exhausted all of her natural resources is now left with the only option left to her. This guy that she's heard stories about. It doesn't even say that she, she has seen him, but the things that she has heard about him are driving her to go check this out. It says that she grew worse. Another aspect of that could also be that in that time, the things that doctors did in their poking and prodding, it was very arcane, and their practices might have been pain-inducing just by the very nature of the fact. They didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have the advances that we do. And the way that they went about attempting to heal people could have been potentially dangerous. And Mark might be tipping the cap to that idea as well. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. What she's tapping into at this time is, again, that sort of mindset in first century Jewish culture where someone who has healing power, it's not just limited to their voice or not just limited to their prayers. It's like contained in their very body. And we see this in Mark chapter 6. It says, wherever they went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged Jesus to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. In Acts, we see this power sort of invested into uh, the, the first apostles. It says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Peter's shadow. Guy's just walking, and as he's walking, his shadow might potentially heal these people. Not because there's anything inherently good of Peter's shadow. I'm sure he was a very tall, well-built guy. Who knows? But like the fact that these healings were a result of the power that was invested in, into Peter and the apostles because of who Jesus was. Later on in the book, this is Paul's turn. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. What? There's quite a contrast between our moment in time and the moment in time that we are looking at this evening. For many of us, it's difficult to conjure up hope um, that God even hears our prayers, let alone if this person over here that loves him walks by and the shadow falls on you, you might be supernaturally healed because Jesus is that stinking cool. There's, there's a complete dichotomy in, in, these, in these views here, but we see at this moment what this woman is tapping into is the mindset of the time where Jesus is powerful, Jesus is a healer, if I could just touch his cloak, perhaps I would get some of that. It says this reflects, this is uh, Larry Hurtado, he's a New Testament scholar um, overseas, I believe. It says this reflects what may have been a common kind of desperate hope, that is going to touch um, powerful people's garments. 
The New Testament accounts do not deny that cures sometimes happen, but they also emphasize that such cures must be interpreted in the context of personal faith in Jesus, not merely magical superstition. One of the important parts to note here is this is not just, again, something that's inherently good or powerful about the clothes that Jesus is wearing. It's about who's wearing the clothes. It's about the fact that this is the king of the universe who is invading uh, this moment and bringing the kingdom of of God to earth for the people to experience and people to be changed because of it. The text continues, it says, after, after touching Jesus' garment, thinking to herself, perhaps if I just touch the garment, I'll be healed. It says immediately her bleeding stopped. You could also say literally it's the flow or the fountain of her blood dries up immediately and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. This thing that she had been longing for for years and years and years that have left her out on the outskirts and ostracized by the people that has not allowed her to have community and fellowship and hope in a moment was completely cured. story continues, at once Jesus realized, and this is the strange part of this story, if, if everything else has not been so strange for you, um, this is where it gets strange as well. It says, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. So he turns around in the crowd and asks, who touched my clothes? Okay, and just for a moment, play along with the disciples and think to yourself, like you're in this crowd and people are like all over you. This is like you're at a concert of your favorite artist and you're trying to get into the front row and like you're just weaving your way and then somebody turns around and says, who touched me? Well, it could have been this person or that person or this other person. Like you, you have thousands of people in this very small spot. Um, it could have been anybody. So the disciples ask what we probably would have asked in this moment uh, to, to Jesus. This is R.T. France. He says, the effect is again to set Jesus apart as one with supernatural insight. The fact that he could realize and perceive that something strange was happening in this moment. It says, who can perceive the special situation of the one among the many? That supernatural insight does not, however, apparently extend to an instant recognition of the culprit. So this is Jesus saying, wait, I understand that something has happened. Who was it? It's crazy to think about Jesus, in the story at least, not seeming to know which one it was, and he begins to gaze around throughout the crowd to see. The disciples say, you see the crowd crowding up against you, um, and yet you ask, who touched me? Code, that's a really dumb question, Jesus. It could have been anyone that's in our immediate sphere. I have no idea. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. I love this. And trembling with fear, she told him everything. Understand, because this woman is unclean, and she's putting herself in a scenario and rendering everyone who's touching her unclean. And as she's touching Jesus, the hem of his garment, she's rendering Jesus unclean. And Jesus stops and says, wait, something's happened. Who was it? Now you tell me that you wouldn't be shaken in your boots a little bit in this moment and this woman who has felt this power and knows that she is healed and she has been healed approaches Jesus to hear what he's going to say. She's gotten what she wanted from him but now this question is, 
is he ticked? Is he okay? Are we good? Are we cool here, Jesus? Like, because now I'm clean and now, and now I'm okay, but what's, what's he going to say to her? She's trembling with fear in this moment. And at times, I think if you allow yourself, this is how we should approach Jesus. We've, we've kind of uh, over-heightened this idea of being in, in relationship with Jesus and he's our best bud and everything's really cool, but there's this aspect where he's the holy one, where he is completely, um, good grief, he's the exact representation of the Father. He can sympathize with us in our weakness, but there's something strangely different. It's something that um, Karl Barth would call he's holy other, even in the midst of being one of us. And this idea that, that this woman is approaching Jesus with fear and trembling, I think that there's a piece of that that we can take away from it. Yes, we are in relationship with Jesus, and yes, we can be friends with him, and yes, there is a, a peace that happens there, but there's also this, I think, very real aspect of understanding who he is. He's the king. He's the one that has taken on your sin and your shame and your guilt, and he has taken it to the point of death. There is a difference, in a sense, between us, and I think it's important to, to see that, and I think that she might be onto something here where she's approaching him a bit cautiously. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you, and in a moment she says, whew, that's good news because of what, where it could have gone. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. N.T. Wright says, was it Jesus' power that rescued the woman or her own faith? Because Jesus says, your faith has healed you. How should we make sense of that? Clearly, it was Jesus' power, but he says, your faith has rescued you. The answer must be that faith, though itself powerless, is the channel through which Jesus' power can work. Understand that in moments where we're wanting God to show up and do something, that at times there's this temptation to think it's all about how much faith and I need more faith and if nothing happens and it's because I didn't have faith and I want to at least propose to you that that faith that you have is the channel through which God works. It's God's power and God's will and God's goodness in which these things happen. And it's contingent upon us asking. It's in contingent upon us believing. But I don't think that it's just about us believing to this point or that point or this point or else none of this happens. Hold that intention and we'll come back to that next week because we're going to see a story in which Jesus has to leave because the people have no faith and he can't do anything there. So there is a tension that happens in this moment. But I think we have to agree that it is Jesus' power that is that is allowing this to take place because Jesus is God's son, the one through whom the living God is remaking Israel and humans and the whole world. And faith, however much fear and trembling might accompany it, is the first sign of that remaking, that renewal, that new life. That little bit of faith that we have that God is good and that God is love, and that God cares about us and will work for our good, whatever that may look like.
So the Mark and Sandwich is, he's going to Jairus' house because you've forgotten about Jairus at this point. He is a figment of your imagination. He is long gone. We're like on the edge of our seats thinking about this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and what's gonna happen? Is Jesus gonna be ticked at her? What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And remember, Jairus is still like alongside of Jesus in the midst of the crowd waiting to also see what's going to happen. He's on pins and needles probably in this moment thinking, come on, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. You healed her, that's great, let's go. And here we meet the end of, of Jairus' story. While Jesus was still speaking, I guess to the woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and says, your daughter's dead. And then on top of that, they add the very counselor-like, very um, peaceful statement, so stop bothering him. It's time to go now. Your daughter's dead. This is not tips of how to handle tragic situations when you're dealing with your friends or your family or even your worst enemy. Like you don't go here, but these people, they seem to be callous and saying, why bother the teacher anymore? What you wanted to happen can't happen. And overhearing what they said, Jesus in the midst of the crowd turns to Jairus and says, In the midst of hearing this earth-shattering news that the, the girl that you love with every ounce of your being as a parent loves their child is gone, Jesus says, it'll be okay. Trust me. You've come this far. Let me go a little bit farther with you. He did not let anyone follow him, which is crazy, because again, we're in this midst of, of this huge crowd, except for Peter and James and, and John, who's the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. This is what you did in the midst of grief. You hired people to be professional mourners and criers in that moment to allow you to do whatever you wanted to do. If there's people outside going crazy, you can join in the midst and you're just one of a crowd, but if it's just you, that could be strange. Not given the circumstances, but this was something that was culture at the time. He went in and said to them on his way in, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, she's asleep. The response is, is unclear. It says they laughed at him. It's not clear who is laughing. Is it the disciples that are with him? Is it just the criers? Is it the people that are kind of following in tow? We don't know what's happening here, but we know that they believe that Jesus has completely lost his mind. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. Could you imagine for a moment just being one of those three? where Jesus says, you, 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 you're coming with me. The things that they see, I can't even, I can't even fathom in my mind. He goes to where the child was. He took her by the hand and says to her, Talitha kum. We're going Aramaic here for a moment. This is very strange in the story, but Mark really wants to let this, let this be known. This is exactly what he said. Talitha kum. And then Mark helps his readers out by saying, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Jesus walking into the house saying, guys, why are you crying? She's just asleep. And then Jesus enters the room, puts his hand on her body and says, it's time to wake up. Jesus, like the older brother or the parent that comes in and gives you a little shake and says, 
it's time for school to start. You've got to get up and get in the shower. One of my favorite lines in the Gospels because it's laced with power and authority, but it's also laced with love. Little girl, it's time to get up now. You've slept long enough. I've got something better for you to do. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk. It says she was 12 years old. How long had the woman been suffering with the issue of blood? 12 years. If this was a cool movie, the opening shot would be parents in a hospital room birthing this child and be like, yeah, and this woman maybe in a different wing of the hospital being looked at and, and the, the news comes in and she's not okay. And their lives go in these different trajectories for 12 years until they both culminate and meet Jesus in the same instance where this woman who had been struggling and suffering just wants to touch the hem of his robe and this little girl who had lived a normal life and runs around and has little friends and plays house and whatever else she does and, until this moment of getting sick and then dying and Jesus saying, it's time to wake up. All of these stories come together in this one moment of power and love and forgiveness and goodness that demonstrates God's great power. The story ends very strangely, um, says he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. This was common in Mark where Jesus isn't wanting everyone to go out and tell people what's been going on because he doesn't want to bring up too much um, suspicion, I guess. But then it says, and he told them uh, to give her something to eat. Some people think that this would just prove to the parents that she's not a ghost, she's not a figment of their imagination. She's sitting there, she's eating a fish sandwich with tartar sauce and cheese. I don't, I don't know, I, I'm hungry, I like that. We go back to the BLT if you want, I don't know. But like where she's eating this food to demonstrate that she is alive. That took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. But when you read a good story, sometimes you get sucked into it. What I want to do in the next few moments, though, if you will allow me, um, I want to read that story again. Three more times, in fact. And I want you, in each moment, um, to become a character of the story. And I want you just to envelop who they are and what they're thinking and what they're going through. This is kind of tied into a style of, of reading scripture and praying that's called Lectio Divina, where you, where you enter into this moment of meditation and prayer. And I want to try to guide us through this um, by calling our attention to some things. Now, you've heard the story, you've heard about the context, you've heard about the different things that are happening here, but I want you just to hear the words as I speak them to you. Collectively, I think that we as a church believe that these words... Um, have power, not because there's anything inherent in them, but because of the author of these words that have been given to us to give us life and to give us hope. These stories, as they demonstrate these two really different, different moments culminating into this one moment. The first um, <clears throat> character that I want you to think through is that of the woman with the issue of blood. This is Mark chapter five. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, 
a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed him and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all the commotion and wailing? This child is not dead. She's asleep. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Take 10 seconds. Enter into that story. This is the word of God for the people of God. The next character that I want to invite you to consider is that of Jairus, the man who's a synagogue leader whose daughter is struggling. As I speak these words, enter into this story and allow yourself to hear what the Spirit is revealing to you. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 
She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answers. And yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Take a few seconds and just internalize that. This is the word of God for the people of God. In this final reading of a story that by now you should know quite well, um, I want you to begin to consider Jesus' disciples, the ones who were following him in this crazy, chaotic bit of time in his life, seeing the things that they saw and thinking through the emotions that they probably felt in this story. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little girl is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, 
came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. is the word of God for the people of God. My hope is that in thoughtfulness of this moment, you might begin to realize that there is hope for you. Perhaps it's not a hope where you accept Jesus as your personal savior for the first time, but perhaps this hope is something where you receive deliverance freedom, where you receive life. There's a little line in that story where it says that she might be healed and live. This woman was differentiating, or Jairus was differentiating um, in his daughter's life. Yes, she'll be healed, but she'll go on to live. I think for some of us, we're going through motions. We've failed to see the power. We've failed to see the wonder. We've failed to trust. And my hope is that we as we enter into this story, which is laced with difficulty and problems, that you'll begin to allow yourself to wonder, to wonder what it is that Jesus is doing in and through you, and to allow yourself to be open to the surprise that he may have waiting for you when he demonstrates his power and his goodness and his love.